Uh, Genesis 11, you can go there if you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn in it. If you don't, it'll be on the screens, that's fine. If you don't have a Bible at home and you'd like to have one, we have some at the back table. You could grab one of those on your way out uh, and take that with you so you can have a, a Bible in your home. That'd be great. Uh, we're going to look at a story that uh, really bugged me for the longest time. Uh, up until about a year ago, uh, this story in the Bible had, had just been one of those that, uh, that kind of stuck in my craw, to use a, uh, to use a, a country term, um, that it, it just really bothered me. I couldn't find my way around it or through it. I, I, I just couldn't make sense of it because it, it seems like everything in the story is backwards. Uh, this story is about humanity, it, it, I thought. This story is about humanity reaching out or reaching toward God, trying to make effort to, to get closer to God. And apparently God crushed that and prevented them from reaching that goal of, of getting to God. So, And then you've got this God that I thought was in favor of unity and peace, seemingly dividing everyone and confusing everyone and creating tension between people. So this, this story really bothered me. Uh, up until about a year ago, I, I started to work through it again and, uh, and listen to some other teaching and read some other stuff that, that helped me sort through it in a different way. So I want to go to it on that because I was like, what gives in this? What is, what is going on here? Uh, let's talk a little bit about Genesis before we dive into this, to this verse. The name literally means origins, and uh, it talks about the beginnings of things. A great subtitle for Genesis would be why things are the way they are. You know, if it was a movie, you could have that subtitle, why things are the way they are. Uh, it's particularly true of the first 11 chapters that seem to be the, 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 the getting between of it starts with the beginning and, and creation, and then it gets to the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and, and they look at it as the patriarch of the Israelites. So the first 11 chapters seem to be this, this movement from the beginning to the story of Israel. So that really is this place of, of where we get why things are the way that they are. And we're going to look at the final origin story before we get to Abram uh, in, in Genesis chapter 11 and, and explore this story a little bit, uh, which seems to be about why we have different languages. But there's more to it than, than just that. So let me, let me read it and then we'll have a look at it. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face, over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world for there the Lord, from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Well, there's a number of things going on here, uh, but let's 
let's introduce, introduce this concept by talking about rocks, and let's talk about bricks. Okay? Uh, they're a major part of this story. So in the ancient Middle and Near East, uh, there weren't a lot of trees. There were trees around, uh, but as a construction uh, method, if you wanted to build something out of trees, it was going to cost you a lot of money. In North America and in Europe and in Asia, trees are everywhere. They're cheap. They're easy to use, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in the ancient Middle and Near East, rocks were the way to go because they didn't have trees, but they had rocks, right? And so they would build out of rocks. Well, rocks are a great construction tool. They're inexpensive. They're easy to use. They're easy to find. They can be sometimes easy to transport. Uh, they last a long time, rocks do. Uh, but the construction method was with rocks and with mud. I don't know if you grew up playing with, mock, with rocks and mud. I did. Uh, grew up in the country, rocks, mud, sticks, all those things. Uh, give us a stick and a string and a rock, and we could entertain ourselves for hours. Uh, but uh, but they're, they're a, a relatively handy construction tool. But if you've never tried to make rocks and mud stick and build something out of it, it's, it's relatively complex, and uh, it, it doesn't last a long time. So, But this was the technology that they were working with, was, was rocks, until the brick came along. And they discovered how to take mud and turn it into bricks. Well, this was a huge technological leap forward because suddenly you went from having to find these in relatively the same shape and size and hardness and weight to you could construct uniform bricks that were all the same size, they were all the same weight, they all used the same, they all fit together nicely. And you went from using mud to try and get them to stick together to tar to get them to stick together. It was amazing. It was waterproof. It would stick together forever. Uh, it was this huge technological leap forward. So here in this story of why things are the way they are, we have embedded in this story a story about technology and the way it is that humans interact with technology when we make leaps forward. So that's part of, of what's embedded here in the story. So, so what happens? A couple of observations about this. Uh, what this story says is that when humans have a technological leap forward, when some sort of new technology uh, comes on the scene, the, the automatic response that these people have with this new technology is to try and reach heaven. To try and reach God. They get bricks, suddenly they can build these buildings they weren't able to do before, and they're like, we could build a building to heaven. Now, we know as moderns that this story isn't really about bricks, and this story isn't really about getting to heaven as far as going up high goes, because we've been to the moon, right? And we haven't discovered heaven there yet, right? So we know this isn't just about rocks and bricks, and this isn't just about getting higher. There's a subtext to this story. The Bible doesn't, doesn't put any sort of prohibition against building with bricks anywhere. There's, there's another subtext that's at work within this story. There, we see in this story that there's this human awareness of more. There's this human awareness that there's more to our existence 
than what we experience in the everyday parts of life. When they had this new technology, there was this awareness within these people that, oh, this will open up a means for us to get to that more. That there's something else in our existence that we don't experience necessarily every day, and this technology will help us get to that place. I was going through a closet the other day looking for something, and I found something I wasn't looking for. Uh, does that happen to anyone? Uh, this is my first cell phone. I don't know why it's still in that closet. Because uh, uh, I can use it today. That's why it's still in there. Uh, 1999 was when I got this cell phone. This thing is amazing. It made phone calls. That's it. Um, oh, it also did this. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it does that. Uh, so I, I think it actually stored phone numbers on it. But this was amazing in 1999. I could be reached by anyone anywhere. You know, before this, like if you wanted to get in touch with me, you had to make some sort of physical connection to me, right? Like you had to call me from a phone that had a line. Or maybe it was a wireless phone, but it just short, sent a short signal to a phone where there, to a receiver where there was a line, right? If you wanted to get a hold of me or I wanted to get a hold of you, there had to be some sort of connection between us. Even if it did seem a little bit magical at that point, we could still think through there is some sort of physical connection between us. But, but with this thing, I could be anywhere, as long as it was, out, as it was outside or near a window, I could be anywhere <laughs> and, and, and call anyone anywhere. Or anyone could get a hold of me. Before this, the only thing or being that could be reached by anyone at any time was God. And now suddenly I could be reached by anyone at any time. I was suddenly omnipresent with this thing, right? That's what this did. Reach in your pocket. Grab, grab your cell phone. If you've got one, reach in there and grab, grab your cell phone. Hold it up. I, it was just, so this gave us that ability, right? Where we suddenly went from being disconnected to connected. Now, if you've got a smartphone, keep it up in the air. If you've got a smartphone, keep it up. Joy, I'm going to use yours. And I promise I won't introduce it to the brick or the rock. Uh, so we went from... You trust me. So we went, we, we've now went from, from this, you know, right? Just making phone calls to now this. The battery on this is bigger than this, right? So now we have these phones, which not only give us the ability to make calls, but now with this... Like, if I want to know anything ever, I can go on this and look it up, right? I can Google it. I can Google people. I can Google myself, which all of that is as dirty as it sounds. Uh, but I can, I can go on there and look up this sort of any information if I want to know where I am. I can know what my friends and family are doing and thinking. Because I can go on Facebook, I can go on Twitter, I can find out their information. I can know what famous people are thinking and doing. There are famous people who are famous simply because we know what they're doing and thinking. There's no other reason for them to be famous <laughs> other than this, right? So not only have we gone from being omnipresent, of being everywhere, now we're omniscient. We can know everything, right? Like this is where we've gone. 
we've made this technological leap. See, I told you I'd treat it nicely. There you go. Uh, so we've made this technological leap forward. And we have this tendency with this technology, what we do is we look for the more. So that's part of what this story is about, is how is it that we look for more? When we have advances, when we step forward, we have this tendency as humans to look for and to assume that with each one of these leaps forward, with each one of these new pieces of technology, we'll be able to understand how the universe works. We'll be able to receive more, to know more. And it isn't just with our technology, right? It's with our philosophies, with our religion, with the way that we think that there is an intellectual aspect to this too. It's not just the physical technology. We believe that by understanding we can achieve more. About five years ago, uh, the University of North Carolina did the largest study on the religious beliefs of teenagers that's ever been conducted. Uh, They focused on the United States and they interviewed uh, hundreds and uh, thousands, I believe, of teenagers over a period of time, trying to understand what is, what is it that teenagers believe in, in the United States. And they came to some interesting conclusions and, and found out some inform- interesting information. The study found that with very few exceptions, there are exceptions, but they're relatively few, with very few excep- exceptions, Teenagers in the United States articulated a universal faith among themselves. Regardless of their family of origin, what they believe, regardless of the religious tradition that they even claimed to believe or participated in, American teenagers almost universally articulated the same faith. And the researchers named this religious belief. They called it moralistic uh, moralistic Therapeutic Deism, MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. They said all American teenagers, with very few exceptions, articulate this faith as they talk about what they believe and why they believe it. And this would be the creed of Moralistic Therapeutic Deism if they would articulate a creed. This is what it would be. This is the creed of MTD. There is a God... One God, probably, out there somewhere. This God may go by one name or by many names. This God is interested in the events that happen on earth, but isn't particularly involved in those events or the lives of humans. This God wants people to do good things and not do bad things. But good and bad are defined by the consciousness of each individual. Most importantly, this God wants me to feel good about being me. This God wants me to have a nice, comfortable, enjoyable life. What surprised the researchers is that this creed is not reflective of any of the major creeds of any of the major world religions that are practiced in the United States. Like, this is not an orthodox faith of any existing religion. This is an an entirely new religion religious belief. Uh, Teens, and this faith of the teenagers wasn't reflective of the faith of their parents or of their religious communities. This is an entirely new new faith. Now, I could talk pretty extensively um, about the implications of this and what it means about how it is we as parents 
and we as communities of faith, and particularly we uh, who are um, the religious leaders within these communities of faith, go about uh, indoctrinating and training our children and our kids. It says something about that, but I'm not going to do that today. Uh, I want to, that's, that gets sticky. We're going to keep it easy. No, we're not. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is because in a culture as secular as ours is in the United States, and I think that this would probably be true of, of Western Europe if they did the same study, but in a culture as secular as ours, uh, our culture has influenced our teens to think about the world in religious terms. In a culture as secular as ours, our culture has still influenced our teens to articulate a worldview that recognizes God. Even if this recognition of God is not one that we can attribute to any historic religion, there is still within our culture this gravitational pull, this recognition of a God. And so our culture has, has influenced teens to even think that there is a God. So our culture, even as secular as it is, still acknowledges, still has this understanding, still has this resonance that there's more and that there is a desire to do and to understand this this more. The word that we put on it, the technical term we put toward this understanding the more is this transcendence, right? That we believe there's an understanding within us that there's more and that we want to understand it. We want to be transcendent. We want to understand more. So this is what the story of Babel is about, right? The bricks, the bricks that outdo the, the rocks, help the people become transcendent. They help them understand the more because what we see is that with part of the human condition is that we know that there's a more happening. So what happens, the natural tendency is to take the cell phone and once we get the smartphone, to understand that there's a transcendence built into that. That's our, that's our default mode. That's what we have a tendency to do is to move toward that and say, this advancement will help me understand God more. And so what we see in the Bible is a story about people striving for transcendence, and what happens is, no, God says, no, this isn't the way to transcendence. There's actually a Bible joke embedded in this story. Bible jokes are different than real-world jokes. Uh, the Bible joke says they're going to build this tower to heaven. And so this really tall tower, right, to get to heaven. And so God comes down to see what's going on. So there's this embedded, this joke of, look at them trying to build their tower up to God, but no, God has to come down to even see what they're doing. It's a Bible joke. It's not a real joke. It's a Bible joke. Uh, so they put it in there. I didn't write it. I'm just explaining the joke to you. See, jokes aren't good when you have to explain them to people. So anyway, um, so this is, this is what's happening as we're going to this transcendence where technolo- because there's this understanding that with the technology, as we achieve this transcendence through our actions, there's no more need for God. Because if they could build the, he- the tower to heaven to get there on their own, there was no necessity for God to intervene between them and heaven. So what the story about Babel is about is God saying, no, there's no way for you to reach heaven on your own. You cannot get to heaven. You cannot to build any sort of tower. You cannot use any sort of technology to make you omnipresent or omniscient that will allow you to get to heaven. But what the story of the Bible, as it plays out, says 
that we can't become God to reach heaven. But the story of the Bible is that God becomes a human in order to reach us. So there's this contrast within this story that plays itself out. This, this is the, the reality we see. Let's turn to Luke 14. Uh, so this is the one tower, right? This is the Tower of Babel. This is the tower that tells us there's nothing that we can do to reach God on our own. That God has to reach us. That we can't build a tower through our technology, through our genius, through anything that we have. We can't reach God on our own. But we're going to look at a story uh, in Luke 14 about a tower that Jesus talked about uh, that it's not necessarily a parable. It's more of a, a rhetorical tool. Jesus uses this, this, this story of a tower, this example of a tower to, to prove a point or to make a point or to make a challenge is probably the best way to see it. So it's Luke 14, verse 25. Uh, it says this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Evidently, that was a great rip back in the day. Uh, Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those 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 of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Evidently, Jesus failed the church growth class at seminary. Uh... Because here you have Jesus with a huge group of people following him around. He's, he's got this big crowd who's with him and wants to follow him and, and be with him. And Jesus turns around to them as he had a habit of doing. This isn't the only time Jesus does this. Jesus does this fairly often. He turns around and he says to them what in their minds appears to be this crackpot off-the-wall, crazy thing, right? Their understanding of it is like, what is he saying? Like, later we can come back and we can, we can understand what he's saying based on some context and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. But to the audience he was speaking to when he would say these things, they're like, what, who is this guy? Like, where, where does this come from? We, he just fed us and now he wants us to leave our families to follow him? This doesn't make any sense at all. I thought the Bible was in favor. I thought, I thought God was pro-family, right? Like, why is this he's telling us to hate my father and mother? This doesn't seem to make sense. So Jesus had this habit of doing this. Whenever a large crowd started following him around, he wanted to, like, make it smaller, evidently. So he would have, he failed, he failed the church growth class, all right? So a couple weeks ago, I was, I had, I was fortunate enough to go listen to, um, a pastor. I'll call him a pastor even though he's not pastoring a church right now. 
he has been a pastor, and he's very pastoral, so I'm just going to call him a pastor. Uh, so this guy, I went to hear this, this pastor speak on urban ministry, and he ended up talking about discipleship, uh, which I guess is related. Um, but he, he told some of his story. And 18 years ago, he planted a church in Southern California. Uh, they started in his living room. They started this church. And now it's a church with thousands of people who come to worship every week. And this pastor writes books, and people buy the books. Like, there are pastors who write books, and then there are pastors who write books that people buy. Uh, and this, this is one of the guys who writes books that people buy. And so he's got that happening. And now he's been approached to do video series stuff of, of people just want to hear his teaching and, and want to, to hear what he's saying and believe that God's speaking through him. So as a professional pastor, like this guy's arrived, right? Huge church, tons of influence. People want to hear what he's saying and, and how he's saying it and what he's doing. He gets invited to speak at conferences and, and all this, this stuff. So he's, he's arrived. Well, this last year, he resigned from his position at his church. Not a moral failing, anything like that. Uh, he resigned from his church. He and his family, his wife and their five kids, uh, the oldest is 16 and the youngest is like two or something, sold everything they had and said, God's calling us to do urban ministry somewhere. So they went to Asia to find where it was that God was calling them. Like, we're not sure where, so we're going to go through a number of cities and say, all right, God, is this where you want us to be? And so they went and they did this, and they almost landed in Hong Kong and thought that's where they're going to be. And they're like, no, God's calling us back to the States. So the short story is they're in San Francisco in a two-bedroom apartment in urban San Francisco, and he's discipling people who are in rehab. Uh, This is where he's landed. Now, that's the story uh, and this is how he explains why it was that they made these decisions. And uh, Tim Anderson was there too. So if you don't believe me, you can ask him. He'll, he'll say the same thing. But the way that he articulated why it was that, they, that he felt he needed to change context in that way was this. As he said, I had been able to gather a crowd as a pastor. We had a church that was able to gather people who became believers. He said, we had a church that could gather people in and they would intellectually agree with the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, we could do that as a church. We had people who were willing. And they would even live relatively moral lives because of their agreement with this idea that Jesus was the Messiah. But what we had trouble doing as a church was developing people who were willing to be disciples. He said, because when I read the Bible, when I read verses like this, discipleship is something different than just believing in Jesus. He said, disciples, as I can understand from the Bible, reorder their entire lives around the kingdom in a way that's different than just believing in Jesus. So he said, I don't know what that looks like, so I'm just trying to find it. He said, I'm kind of trying to become a disciple. And so I'm trying to make disciples, so I'm trying to find out where that is and how I flesh that out. So this is the journey that this guy is on. Because this was the rub for him. Jesus wasn't interested in gathering a crowd of people who agreed with him 
and wanted him to make their lives better. Jesus had that crowd, and he essentially pushed them away. What Jesus was interested in was that that crowd would be willing to become disciples. People who would be willing to turn their back on their families, if that's what it meant to follow God. People who would be willing to sacrifice their own lives, if that's what it meant to to advance the kingdom of God. People who would be willing to suffer if that's what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what this chapter in, in Luke apparently says. And so he's trying to, to sort that out. According to Jesus, this tower that he talks about in Luke, this tower of discipleship, costs you something. Jesus says, before you follow me, before you become my disciple, Think about the fact that following me, becoming a disciple, will cost you something. Sit down and figure out what that cost is before you sign on, before you decide to be a disciple. Think about the fact that you're going to have to sacrifice things for this kingdom. Now, to be honest, like that's not what I signed up for when I signed on, right? Like I just didn't want to go to hell. You know, it's like somebody said... This is hell, and this is what happens when you go there. It's terrible. This is Jesus, and if you believe in him and say this prayer, you don't have to go there. I'm like, sign me. Like, where's the paper? Let's sign, let's pray, whatever it is. I want to do that, not that, right? That's where a lot of us start. But as we, and I think that's where a lot of the people who follow Jesus started of like, man, my life is terrible. That looks better. I'm just going to start doing that. That's where we start. But as we push further into Jesus, it's like, boy, there's more going on here. This, this, could, this could cost me something. This could get complicated. This could be uncomfortable. But this is the tension that we live in then, is that these two towers connect, right? There's a connection between these two towers. Because what we have in the story of the Tower of Babel is this idea that we can't get to God on our own. No matter how we try and what we do, no matter what... Uh, what we have available to us. Remember, we have transcendence, right? We can know anything at any time with our smartphones. Even with those things, even with all the information, all the ideas, all of, all of the benefits that we have as modern humans, we still can't get to God on our own. Heaven can't be reached with a tall tower or a rocket ship or great ideas about them. We can't get to God on our own. Only God can get to us. So we have this idea that we have to to come to terms with. So then we say, all right, so if only God can get to us, where is God and what does that look like? But then we have in the Bible, it says that, that God is Jesus and that he has come to us. But in order to be a disciple, it might cost us. It might be difficult. It might mean that our lives have to look different and have to be rearranged around this kingdom, and it will cost us. We will have to sacrifice for it. So we hold these two things in tension. Like, I want God. I want to be transcendent. I know there's more to life than all I can see and taste and touch. I know that there's more and that that's God, but I can't do that on my own. But... To accept Jesus and to follow him is going to cost me something. So how do I live in this tension between the two of this I can't accomplish on my own and this is going to be hard? 
This is a question that the disciples in the story of the Bible ran up against. And there's a story similar to this one that, uh, that John has an account of uh, that we won't turn to. But, but Jesus does one of these things where a big crowd is gathered and Jesus says, says something that offends the people and, and many of them leave and go away because Jesus has just offended them. And Jesus turns to his closest followers and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to leave too? Are you done with me? And Peter, speaking for the group as he often does, chimes in, he says, he says, no, we're going to stay. And this is exactly what he says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I've come to this conclusion in my own life that whatever it costs to follow Jesus, I'm willing to pay because it's true. Whatever it costs to follow Jesus, I'm willing to pay it because it's true. Because I know that this tower exists. I know the story of Babel. I know that I can't reach God on my own and I want to be with God. And I know that the only way to God then is through Jesus and that's going to cost me. But because of these two, I live in this place where I'm willing to accept the cost because it's a true cost. And it will bring truth to my life and truth to me as a person. So these then are these two, these two different towers that we have, the Tower of Babel and the Tower of Discipleship. In your, in your uh, bulletins, there's a, a talk sheet, a green sheet where you can take notes. I haven't asked you to take any notes because uh, we're going to close here. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up, and we're going to finish with a song. And what I want you to do with that, uh, that piece of paper is this. There's some open space at the bottom. Draw a line down the middle of that open space. And on one side, write the Tower of Babel. And on the other side, write the Tower of Discipleship. We can write Babel and Disciple, whatever, however you want to identify what the two towers are that you're going to, uh, that we're going to discuss about. Um, which, by the way, the Lord of the Rings nerd in me really wanted to call this two towers, but I refrained from doing that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, but with this, with this time and reflection, what I, what I challenge you to do is to write some things down on that sheet of paper. Under the Tower of Babel, uh, I'd encourage you to write down whatever it is that God is speaking to you about the ways that you try to get to heaven on your own, to write those things down. Because we all have these tendencies, right? Through our own uh, ingenuity, through our own genius, through our own ideas, even through our own religious practice, through our own faithfulness, we believe that we're getting to heaven on our own, that we're achieving God-like status on our own. So take, as we, as we sing these, this song, write some of those things down of what are the ways that you're trying to get to God on your own, even as an act of confession to say, God, I'm doing these things and I know that this needs to be different. So God, here they are. I'm confessing them to you. Help me with them. And then under the Tower of Discipleship, what I encourage you to write are the things that you know God has called you to lay down for the sake of the kingdom. It may be something about the way that you handle your finances. It may be something about the way that you're ordering your life. It may be something about the way you're pursuing your career. Or I don't know what it is. That's why I'm letting you write it down. Of what are the things that God has called you to in discipleship and out of discipleship 
that are hard things that are costing you something that you need to bring and say, Jesus, I'm giving this to you. This is yours, and I need to let it be yours. And in order to follow you and be a disciple, this can't be true in my life. So I encourage you to, to write those things down, uh, too, as, as we worship. So as we sing this last song, take some time to write that stuff down. Let me pray, and we'll sing this song. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people who have nowhere else to turn. Jesus, we acknowledge, even if it's for the first time, that we believe that your words are true. And nowhere else can we find fulfillment. Nowhere else can we find transcendence except in your presence. Jesus, so we ask that you would give us words to write. We ask that these words we sing would speak to us. God, be present to, uh, with us now. Amen.